Transnet is in crisis, making headlines for all the wrong reasons. From former Transnet executives in court for fraud and corruption to alleged ghost trains illegally operating and depriving the SOE of much-needed revenue, the stakes have never been higher. As the arteries of our economy, fully functioning railways and ports are critical if South Africa wants to benefit from an increasingly supportive backdrop for commodities and emerging markets. But how do we get Transnet back on track? This is No Ordinary Wednesday, our in-depth look at what's driving markets, shaping the economy and changing the game. I'm Lenya Rossillo, the producer of this show, standing in for our regular host, Jeremy Maggs. Here to discuss the extent of the Transnet crisis, its impact on the economy and possible solutions, I'm joined by Hank Langenhoven, Chief Economist of the Minerals Council of South Africa, Tesha Jacobs, Investec Treasury Economist, and Dennis Hobson, Head of Logistics at Investec for Business. Hank, Tesha, and Dennis, welcome back to No Ordinary Wednesday. Hank, let me start with you. I tried my best to paint a picture of the current state of Transnet, but I'm sure there's so much more to it. Can you lay it out for us? It is logistics, let me put it broader, is double has double the importance than electricity. The country spends double the amount and it's in the 400, 500 billion per annum. Uh, and we essentially a landlocked country. We are 500 kilometers away from the closest harbor. Most of the economic activity is in the Gauteng area and for mining, we are even further away. So absolutely critical. Mining is, the, the metrics are actually wrong. Mining, mining is a very important component of the rail income. It's more than 80%. But it should be actually the other way around because the most important line is the container line between, in terms of GDP, the container line between, between Johannesburg and Durban. And just to stand even slightly further back, the country exports 3.8 trillion rands worth of export and imports of products, not services, if you, if you take services out of the numbers, which is in the order of 50 to 60% of GDP. And that's how important this is. Transnet and the rail capacity and, of course, the harbors where it goes out are absolutely vital for that portion of the economy. And I, I don't know how to put it more succinctly. For mining, we think if we, if we were running at the averages of 2019, the tonnages, we have lost in last year something like 40 billion in exports. Now, it's always difficult to work out an, an opportunity cost because you're trying to work out something that didn't exist. If you look at the contracted numbers that we should have exported, that number goes up to about 50 billion. But we think if we were running at the design capacity of the railway lines and the harbors, there's 150 billion that we didn't earn. And finally, perhaps uh, what is what is crucial for the economy, last year the country had a, a deficit, a balance of payments deficit of something like 30 billion. If you just think about the 50 billion that we could have exported in terms of what we contracted to, to export, we would have had a surplus. And that's how important the transnet component of logistics is for the economy. Sure, you've laid out some incredible numbers, transnetting numbers. To continue on that thought, we are seeing big resource companies like Exaro looking at alternatives to transnet after rail constraints reduced their coal exports by a third. Is this feasible? It was feasible to a point, but we are quite concerned. And of course, we're talking about trucking and we're talking about possible alternative harbors like Maputo. And you won't believe some of the manganese even went through Luderitz uh, in Namibia. That should not be the case. And we think the road infrastructure is basically at its capacity in terms of trucking. It should not be like that. Transnet only the rail part of the Durban-Johannesburg line. The tonnages on rail is something like 10%. 
and it should be the other way around. 10% on road that you need quickly and that sort of thing and 90% on rail and hence the proposal to have that concession. But we are very concerned about it and so are the communities and, 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 the, and the road authorities that we will destroy our roads. Of course, the toll roads are earning a lot of money, but it, it, it's good for them, but it shouldn't be like that. And, and the ter- deterioration of the, uh, of the road infrastructure is just unacceptable. It, it, it shouldn't, we don't think it can really increase. Uh, so but in short, we are at capacity. We are at capacity, as you say, Hank. Dennis, let me bring you into this conversation to look from the importers and exporters' lens. This is clearly an unsustainable situation. What's happening with supply chains locally? I think firstly, the too many inefficiencies within supply chains, and it's quite broad, but with inefficiencies, you get additional costs coming in. So it also impacts profitability or, you know, or it's been passed on to the consumer, which also adds on to, to inflationary pressures. Um, it almost feels like businesses are constantly hustling right now, um, having to make alternative plans because you know, there's no predictability in terms of how cargo should be moving. And there's also service levels are very poor, which also leads to, to additional lead times. Um, you know, and the costs just keep, it's almost just a, a reoccurring theme of you know, costs keep going up. Also, when, when having to build in additional time for this lead time, as well as building a buffer for higher stockholding, again, you know, it's increasing your financing costs. Um, and holding high inventory levels. It's not helping to drive efficient supply chains, um, and supply chains are a big driver of business growth in today's world, and not just a function of, of a business. You know, as Hank said, there's far too much cargo moving on the road, and that's creating a lot of unhappiness, a lot of congestion as well around you know, around the, the, the terminals and ports themselves. So again, you know, that has a big impact on the on the transporters themselves um, in terms of them turning their, their trucks around, having to finance additional trucks, drivers, etc. So it's not a happy place, though, on the contrary, it has also you know, made some companies become innovative and, and really think out the box. So there's always uh, good that goes with the bad. But in general, our supply chains aren't as efficient as they should be. Despite the innovation you speak about, um, I mean, you just described companies as hustling. How is this impacting the cost of doing business in South Africa and the competitiveness of our exports and imports? So, I mean, with inefficiencies, as I said, increased costs, that's a big driving factor. With a low profitability, you start to, to get into a situation where business, it becomes unsustainable. And also, you know, speed to market is, is key. Um, so as soon as you have delays in the supply chain, it impacts reliability. Um, and there's also big reputational damage too. Take your commodity exports as a prime example, um, what we've seen especially on the coal side recently, and then think back to 2022 of the citrus market. Um, and they took significant knocks, um, and that's really you know, put a lot of businesses and, and even farmers under uh, severe pressure. Other side also you know, creates production delays, um, which then also leads to additional costs because you're having to you know, work overtime or uh, and you're trying to catch up. And again, you know, delays and orders um, affects your, your competitiveness too. There's underutilized assets. Um, it's not enough throughput going through some facilities. Um, so you're struggling to also get economies of scale. And that also allows you to, you know, if you've got the economies of scale, it also allows you to, to be more competitive in, in your offering. You know, the road transport costs, we've seen, you know, how they've escalated over the last few years. And you now that's really just getting passed back onto to businesses and then ultimately consumers. And then the other side as well, social unrest. That creates major disruption to business. It's also creating further uncertainty. And, you know, when you look at uh, price and reliability, um, they're all factors of competitiveness 
So, you know, it really does impact our, our competitiveness globally and then also for, for local companies too. Especially your, your small and medium enterprises, which are fundamental to our economy, they're struggling and having to deal with a lot more stresses than they should be. So, you know, they, they're struggling to, to grow themselves and ultimately it affects uh, employment too. And with such a list, how concerned should we be about our trade relationships because of this crisis? If we have failing infrastructure, it's, uh, I think it's very worrying. Well, one, it's, it's impacting our economic growth. So for you know, foreign direct investment or other you know, global companies looking to, to set up businesses in South Africa, it impacts their returns too. So what uh, ends up happening is they start looking at alternatives. We have missed opportunities. And over time, you start to lose your relevance um, and you start to lose out on, on trade support through different economic zones too. So it doesn't put South Africa in a positive light. It seems to be harder to do business. And the other side is, you know, just thinking about carbon emissions. It's a hot topic globally, um, but especially in developed countries. You know, we just start getting penalized in time for our carbon emissions. You know, if we're moving, for example, so much cargo via road transport, you know, that's, that's not going to help our kind of long-term standing with some of our trade partners. A contentious one is probably also some, you know, being forced to go and find alternative markets for product, which might, outside of developed countries, could create some diplomatic issues as well for us um, in the future. Tertia, let me bring in your economic lens. You've heard from Hank, you've heard from Dennis. They've painted a dire picture. Transnet's inability to efficiently move goods locally and internationally has direct and severe consequences for the country's economic growth, which is already in dire straits, not least because of the power crisis. Yes, um, you know, what both Dennis and um, Hank pointed out is basically how integrated South Africa is in the rest of the world. And just to add some of the numbers that they've mentioned, you know, Transnet has a monopoly of railways, right, and freight services. So, you know, it operates multi-product hydrocarbon pipelines. It's got 16 port terminals and it also owns commercial seaports, right? So it's like the, the veins of the economy. And you'll see over the past few years as well, South Africa's GDP growth rate used to track global growth, right? And there has been a divergence because we just can't, can't export our export volumes are not growing. Um, it's basically the value effect of the commodities that have been saving our balance of payments and government finances over the past two years. And now with the electricity constraint on top of the, the logistics crisis, you know, our potential GDP is like zero. So, you know, it's absolutely imperative that these issues get addressed. It also impacts, um, you know, employment creation. You know, if, um, you know, we could increase our mineral exports, it's easy to create about 500,000 direct jobs, you know, and there will be indirect jobs also created. And then what Dennis referred to, you know, in terms of the increase in costs, an additional factor is that is the systemic damage to infrastructure, you know, as there has been a switch from rail to road transport, you know, more exports are going via Maputo. And that has severe implications for the, the quality of, of the roads as well. And then I can just throw in, you know, there's also been a switch in, you know, from in passenger transport from rail to to um, taxis, for example. So there, there are major consequences here that will impact growth, that is impacting growth. We've spoken about the impact on the economy, but just exactly how much has government spent, and by extension, the taxpayer on Transnet in recent years, and how much more can government afford to pump into Transnet? 
So to Hank's point, I just want to mention that the, the freight services of Transnet adds about 45% to total revenue, right? So that has actually been declining. And when you look at the revenue growth at um, Transnet in uh, 20, fiscal year 21, just after COVID, revenues declined by 10.5%. And then up to March last year, there was an increase in 1.8%. But then what happened in the meantime, you know, we had the KZN floods in April 21, which damaged infrastructure. It, for example, it, it impacted, you know, commodity exports via the Durban Harbour. It impacted on Ford's production of cars. So in the October MTPPS, government provided financial assistance to Transnet to the value of 5.8 billion rand. Half of that must go in to fixing infrastructure in, in, you know, that was damaged in the flooding. But the other half, the two and a half billion, must go into fixing locomotives because the lack of capacity created by um, locomotives that can't run is also a major constraint. So from, I just want to mention here, um, this month or in May, um, the minister of the DPE is going to China to discuss the, the issue of providing um, components to transient locomotives. So that would be relatively a quicker fix if, if we can achieve that. But as far as more financial assistance from National Treasury is forthcoming, it's becoming all the more challenging for Treasury, um, you know, they face huge spending challenges. Um, you know, we have seen the salary increase going through. You know, these numerous state-owned enterprises that continue to to fail. So going forward, it's it's imperative that Transnet sort of fixes um, addresses the capacity, and that's where the private sector will have to come in to improve the volumes going through, as well as its um, ability to generate revenue. And on the world stage, Tertia, with the dollar weakening, deglobalization, rerouting supply chains and global growth rates slowing, this should be an exciting time for a commodity rich country like South Africa. What global opportunities will we be missing out on if we can't get Transnet up and running? Yes, so there are actually several issues um, playing out at the moment and two of them are actually, you know, more related to what Dennis referred to, you know, political dynamics. So the first is the BRICS conference or BRICS summit in, in August where South Africa, you know, invited the president of Russia where the criminal court ordered, criminal court has ordered um, an arrest upon his arrival. The second one relates to, you know, climate change. The European Union has now um, announced um, what they call a carbon border adjustment measure. So the content of exports will become very important and there will be an additional tariff imposed if you don't um, meet their standards. So those are the political economic dynamics playing out. Um, and then there are other issues. For example, you know, looking forward, some of the fastest growing um, countries going forward will be in Asia, specifically India. So if we can't fix our rails, it means we won't be able to benefit from faster growth there. Then very importantly, there's also new cross-border value chains developing that can see a rerouting from exports via, for example, Zambia is uh, using South Africa to export a lot of its goods. So there are new rail corridors being developed, for example, Mozambique and um, Namibia. So that is a, a potential new a competition coming on for South Africa. So, you know, the, the point here is, is that we will not be able to meet long-term demand if we don't increase our um, capacity on, on our railways and ports. 
We'll continue this conversation in a moment to look at possible solutions. I'd just like to remind you that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Make sure not to miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please take a moment and rate us. Hank, let me continue this conversation with you. The situation is at a tipping point. President Cyril Ramaphosa is pushing for reforms to help address the crisis. How likely do you think it is that these will materialize quickly? And what do you think the top reform priority should be? Well, we're fairly certain that it will materialize. How quickly is is another story. He's very serious about it and wants us to, to come to some solutions on this. It is complex and different from the NECOM process that are going on. Now, just to give you some background on that, to explain my statement, the NECOM situation looks at the overall electricity and energy supply of the country, but also in very detail at how we can accelerate self-generation because, I mean, alternative from from ESCOM. And and our experience was that the the term uh, a one-stop shop is often used. It is often mostly impossible to do. Uh, In in electricity, the issues and the the regulations are, are governed by different levels of government, different institutions in government, which you can't very well cancel out and put a group of people in a room and say, right, whomever has a project can, can go there. Now, to come to the, to the logistics one, to a degree that is also true. But for me, it is closer to the road and toll road efforts that we've done and, and we have done very successfully, except for the Gauteng one, which has its own sort of reasons for the problems that we experience. But you, in essence, are talking about running the infrastructure, which is akin to running the road, build the road, maintain it. But then you have very unique routes. Just think about the container route. And I don't know much about logistics and and containers specifically, but apparently, and, and as we know, most railways in the world are actually carrying containers. But it needs to be very high volume. It needs to be very efficient, very fluent, and very quick turnaround times. And the issue around supply chains here is more important, not that it isn't important in in bulk commodities, but if you can't turn around a wagon in a certain time and it isn't at the port and can't be loaded at the time the ship is there, every step of that has a cost implication if if you don't do it like a clock. So the container component is a, is a very unique situation. Now, the bulk commodities that we export are similar. You have uni lines and ports like the iron ore one and probably the Kucha manganese one, but not even that because the lines to Kabecha is in, are in great need of expanding capacity because the auto industry wants to use that, the BMWs and, 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 and Nissans and Fords of the world because they import the high value stuff and they export the, the vehicles, which is vital for the for exports as well, like all the other exports. But the coal line is a line that's used by, it's actually, some of it is shared by Prasa. Coal is the largest user of that. But manganese use it sometimes, not often. Magnetite is using it. Chrome is using it, chrome ore and ferrochrome. And additional issue, and and that's not so much the case in the Western Cape with, with Cape Town. Cape Town is very important for the agricultural sector. But the line to Richards Bay is vital for these commodities. It is also vital for the agricultural sector in Mpumalanga. 
also exporting, and, and I said earlier, a lump of coal don't rot, uh, an apple rots and, a, and, a, and an, an archie rots. So it's vital, it's much more, of course, seasonal, which makes it bottlenecks certain periods of the, of, the, of the year. But I mean, we know when the season's off, so you can plan for it. Uh, the alternative is, is, is Maputo, which is, you won't believe now, actually an option for coal. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be. It is always been the closest to the Mpomalanga area. So the solutions are very unique. And you have users who are the logistics components of companies, the product owners, which are the, the manufacturers and the, and, and the mining companies and the farmers and the chemical industry. I have to mention that. South Africa is very dependent on chemical imports. And it also comes through the Richards Bay Durban link to Johannesburg. But then you have the shipping companies on the other side, and they're all linked to find solutions for each one of these really different needs will take time. And two, and I've been thinking about this a lot, our biggest concern at the moment is probably the paradigm shift has taken place that there must be more involvement in, in, in the logistics uh, in Transnet and or in, uh, in other ways. But how? What is the framework of how you're going to do it? And is it at all possible to have a framework that will govern the infrastructure and the components and the complexities of all the others, which is the problem? The answer is probably no. But how? And the know-how that's needed, the, the knowledgeable client, if I can put it that way, whomever that may be, is needed. And the unfortunate thing is we don't have much time. We can sort out short-term issues, but we're talking about long-term. We really need locomotives to just to, to, to latch on to what Tercia is saying. There are private sector companies that can provide it, but not at the scale that's needed. The real quick solution is getting the locos that we have back onto the rails. The next issue is to really fix the infrastructure because there hasn't been maintenance done. The line to Richards Bay is a double line except for the tunnel, but it is in, in essence a single line because there, there's been so many sections of one of the, the lines that's been closed because of maintenance issues, etc. So we will probably get a solution. The timing is a big issue. We are, as a mining industry, are getting involved and the concept is that perhaps we should try and, and contribute to the debate about how that structure should look. If you don't have that, you can put together a, an unsolicited bid, for want of another word, with the companies that are delivering the product, the financiers, the designers, the maintenance companies, etc. But if you don't have, a, let's use a computer term, a docking station, you can forever go into an iteration that, that isn't liked and kicked back, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not without cost. I remember when the, some of the toll roads were built, the cost to put something like that together at the time, I mean, I'm talking 20, 20, 25, 30 years ago, was large. And if three or four companies do the same thing, design, get all the contractors together, get the financiers, get the insurance, get the long-term planning, they're all spending the same amount of money. I remember at one of the projects, it was something like 150 million just to put the concept on the table. There was agreement that the client will refund some of the cost of the losers. Now, we're so far away from that. Uh, and perhaps because it's so complex. And, and I don't want to be negative at all. I'm, I'm trying to, to, to state that there are several hurdles that are unique that we need to very quickly create as much as possible certainty because the private sector will get involved. There's no doubt about it that the funding is available. If it's a proper project, it will, it will work. But the speed and, and the thoroughness of, of designing that, that we don't make big mistakes, that we don't, have a big failure in one of or any one of the projects is, is vital. 
uncertainty, I would say, is going to be the enemy of the timing. You spoke about solutions. You've touched on the private sector. Let's expand on that. What role is the private sector playing or should be playing in turning around this crisis? One can think of different phases or depths of of involvement. I mean, if if you take the infrastructure as one example, we know that there were problems with with the maintenance on some of the lines. And the private sector mining companies got involved, got the machines, got the material that was needed to fix it. So that's probably a small providing a a private sector service that was in-house at the time. But to then take it one step further and say, we will take over the maintenance of that line, which will immediately say, but hang on, is it only the maintenance or what are the needs for growth on this line? Then it becomes a, a much longer term discussion that one has to have. On either the rolling stock and, and the wagons, we know we not maintain some of it. We, we, we have too little capacity. The auto industry is crying for carriages that can bring their components from the coast, but to take their fully built vehicles back to the coast quickly to the roll-on, roll-off ships. That's another conversation um, on its own. And they will get involved, probably also financing it, because like mining, we probably take longer-term decisions than 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 auto company, uh, if I may be that presumptuous. But you won't put up a factory if you don't look and understand and have a good perception of where the market is going. And then what does it mean to actually service that market? That then becomes this debate about how we're going to fix the logistics. So it's a difficult question to answer. Probably the best way is to say it is unfortunately unique to every issue that we have at the moment. And uh, and, and it is, maybe I should just finish off with that. Apologies for using the toll road situation again. But when the toll roads were conceptualized, there was no company in the country that could do it. The first one was built to to Petersburg. There were three of the biggest construction companies involved. But a market was created. After a while, one construction company with the planners and the the financiers could do it. And I think that is important. That is another long-term way of looking at this. There isn't enough locomotives from anybody. So the short-term one is to get the locomotives to move. But there will be, if there is some growth, manganese may replace iron ore, there's a longer term. Uh, companies will come up and say, listen, we're willing to p- provide the wagons and the, another line, etc., etc." It's not having something and growing it. It's actually putting something, conceptualizing it, putting in place and try and make certain that it works. The world will be interested, of course, but it will take time. And that perspective of you are creating something that will create the efficiencies or increase the efficiencies and help us to have this supply chain run like a clock can be done. Still on the private sector, Transnet has sought assistance from the private sector to run the all-important Johannesburg-Durban rail container corridor, but this hasn't sparked much interest. Why is that? No, it has. It has. It's all phases. There are several companies involved, international ones as well. The first round has happened. It was really, and I don't know the terminology, but the first concept of how they will do it, there has been loose consortiums created. I don't know how many. And the next phase will then be a few preferred bidders, I would imagine, if, if I think about the toll process again. And then the detail will come out and then the, the winning bidders will be uh, will be accepted. It could be a combination of private sector companies or a combination of some components of, of transit itself. We don't know. But I mean, this is a, this is a journey and it has definitely started much more interest than, than, for example, the slots that were on the market. 
Tisha, we've had an in-depth conversation about Transnet today. From all that we've heard, I have to ask, do we have another ESCOM on our hands? And how do we avoid that path, specifically the financial consequences for government? Yes, so there are two main issues involved here. So the first one is the liquidity and ability of Transnet to service its debt redemptions. And the other one is then to increase maintenance and um, invest in new capacity. So as far as the liquidity issue is concerned, very interesting that Moody's actually changed Transnet's rating outlook to stable from negative in February after Transnet successfully issued a $1 billion loan in the global financial capital markets. So this is an indication that Transnet will be able to tap capital markets. So that's point one. But the, the second issue now comes in in terms of generating revenue as well as being able to borrow to invest in maintenance and um, new capacity. So at the moment, you know, with these operational cash flow challenges from the underperformance of especially the, the freight rail, Transnet is actually deferring capex spending, right? So they, they try and sort of allocate funds in line with demand, but we're also not growing. So it's it's a very difficult balancing act. And I think the answer then is to involve the, the private sector to speed up this, this process and also being able to fund some of it. So we still have time to fix it. Is that what you say? I think as, as Hank said, the level, if there's high level of uncertainty, it postpones and it basically means that Transnet will not be able to increase investment and we won't be able to grow the economy. So it comes back to our first discussion. How are we going to grow the economy? How are we going to increase the potential growth rate from the current 0%? Dennis, let's wrap this conversation up with you with a very important question. How should logistics businesses be thinking about the future? Because it's clear the situation is unlikely to change anytime soon. I think it's very broad, but find uh, gone general themes. Uh, the first one would be to actually have to keep your finger on the pulse. There's so much change that does take place and uh, have to remain agile. Um, but it's something that logistics companies also learned through the COVID time um, and a lot of lessons uh, have been learned. There's also you know, having to have a deep understanding of your, your customers' requirements and there's you know, building strong relationships, collaboration. That's critical to, to any uh, company essentially, but especially within supply chain and logistics context where there are numerous challenges that uh, you know, need some uh, out-of-the-box thinking. Um, you know, it's also in investing in aspects that, that drive efficiencies and upskilling of people. Um, you know, that's critical. We need you know, leadership. We need brilliant individuals to, to really drive innovation as well. It's identifying the risks and how, and how do we mitigate those risks. It's essential for companies to do scenario planning. Um, there's so many moving parts, but you need to remain agile and, and understand the different scenarios that, that could play out. Um, and that often gives companies a competitive advantage and there are good examples in the South African market where, where certain companies are very good at that and, and have grown their market share in difficult times too. And then you know, I think it's, it's a big topic of, of South Africa, being committed to public-private partnerships. You know, there's different stakeholders and role players and you know, we need a collective front and, and force to, to really be committed and, and be part of the solution instead of you know, just blaming each other all the time. Hank Langenhoven, Tasha Jacobs, Dennis Hobson, thank you for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. Please join us again in a fortnight as we continue to explore money trends shaping your world. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Till next time, farewell from me, Linya Rosselo, and the Focus Radio team. 
The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.